Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Fly Racing Racer X podcast. Some Coy Gibbs talk today on the show. Not an easy one to do, but a fun one to do in some ways, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Thank you to the folks at Racetech. Pulp 2022 is a code to save with Racetech. Do your motor work. Get suspension work done there. Tell them you listen to Pulp. They'll give you a discount. Uh, oil changes, seals, bushings, spring rates, all of that. Uh, get your suspension working right with the folks at Racetech. Award-winning gold valves can get dropped right in. You'll be like my buddy Noof with the gold valves and uh, do really good things with your suspension. And they got motor work done as well. Listen to Tell me, listen to Pulp. They'll give you a discount. Thank you to Racetech, Racetech.com. And All Balls Racing as well. Whether it's the Pivot Works, whether it's uh, Hot Cams, whether it's uh, the Hot Rods, whether it's Vertex Pistons, All Balls Racing Group will have you covered uh, from your bike and all quality, high-quality OEM replacement OEM quality replacement parts, uh, really great stuff. I've used it in a lot of my uh, uh, rebuilds for project bikes. Works well, great prices, uh, f- tons of fitments, tons of uh, uh, vintage stuff as well available. So allballsracinggroup.com, you go there and you can see all the lines that they have. And uh, they certainly do a great job with those guys. So keep it in front of your mind if you're rebuilding your bike. Uh, all right, on to the show. A Pulp MX Network production. Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show presented by Maxxis Tires, Renthal, Motosport.com, and Kuba Links on RacerXOnline.com. With your continuing gracious support of our sponsors, we're thriving at over 1,800 podcasts delivered with over 20 million downloads. Click the Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out. Donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, enrich your moto lifestyle by working with the sponsors who support us. The original moto podcast featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews, race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's the voice bringing it all to you, Steve Mathis. Welcome, everybody, to the Fly Racing Racer X podcast with Bill Orr from KYB. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. As always, flyracing.com from all the information on the latest gear, the Evo stuff, the light stuff, the kinetic, kinetic mesh. It's all there. Uh, thank you to the folks at Fly Racing. They've got many lines of the Formula helmets, CP, CC shells. It's a carbon. It's a, a, a carbon plastic, different names for different shells, different price points, but same great safety features, whether it's the Conehead EPS, whether it's the uh, Rion technology. Please check it out. Flyracing.com, of course. Justin Brayton, Warren Fly, RJ Hampshire, Jalik Swollen, all of those guys. Warren Fly Racing. Get it from your local dealer or from motorsport.com. Thank you, Fly. Lots of things going on with those guys. Exciting stuff. And thank you to Renthal as well, the number one trusted brand in the paddock, whether it's uh, uh, sprockets and chains, bars, whatever it is, Renthal.com will have it on their website for you. And you look at Red Bull, Kawasaki, Red Bull KTM, you look at Monster Energy Kawasaki, you look at Factory Honda. They use Renthal products they have for many, many years. And if you are uh, got a bike and you've been racing for a while, chances are you use something from Renthal and you know the quality that they have over there. So whether it's the 7 8 bar or the old twin wall bar, whatever it is, Renthal.com will have you covered and uh, grips as well. They do great things with that. And maybe you don't realize that they have mountain bikes, stems and bars as well, carbon and aluminum. Try it out. Uh, oversized and standard size available. 
Renthal.com. Maxxis Tires, whether it's the uh, MXSTs developed by some guy named Jeremy McGrath, who uh, Bill has worked with before, or whether it's uh, mountain bike tires, uh, light truck tires, whether it's Maxxis.com for more information on that. Great, great UTV tires. So I know a lot of people are doing that more and more, and Maxxis has that category on lockdown so thank you to maxis Cobalinks, motorsport.com will tell you more about but for now interesting podcast with a guy that's done a lot in the industry and uh, um yeah from honda production stuff to kyb uh bill Orr is certainly one of those guys behind the scenes it's really really interesting to talk to he's got some cool stories too as well so thank you for listening uh the fly racing racer x podcast with bill Orr. away we go all right, as promised on the Fly Racing Racer X podcast show, a gentleman who's been in the industry for a long time working behind the scenes, whether it's a KYB, whether it's Honda, or anything else that he's been going on. He's had a front row seat to some really, really cool stuff in the sport. And I'm stoked to welcome from KABA, Bill Orr. What's up, Bill? How are you, man? Hey, Steve. How you doing? Thanks I'm good. for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Uh, got to know you a little bit with some uh, suspension work over the years. Of course, Ricky Gilmore has been on the Pulp Show a whole bunch, and he works underneath you there at KYB. Uh, I guess take us through, uh, what's your job title at uh, KYB? Well, let's see. It's pretty simple. We have a group, a small group of guys here, technicians, very talented ones, I might add, taking care of some of the last bunch of years championships and hot top-level riders and stuff. Um, Ricky, Ryan, and John at this point. And then our kind of master is Ross Maeda at Enzo. Mm-hmm. And I try to manage the KYB side of activities. You know, Ross has got his uh, kind of like uh, advisor development role with mm-hmm. KYB yep. and takes care of his own uh, race shop, Enzo Racing, and his group of riders that he chooses to work with and his technicians. And we're in place here to take care of the KYB side of activities from production motorcycle to um, race teams, mm-hmm. uh, riders, and testing development on behalf of KYB Japan. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Uh, let's talk about Ross for a second here. One of the, the best guys in the industry, certainly somebody I really, really admire. Always loved Ross Maeda and, uh, you know, of course, Enzo very successful suspension company he started years ago. Now, you know, in talking to Ross and doing podcasts with him, I mean, he he's working with riders in the, you know, mid-80s, early 80s for KYB. Uh, he's been there a long time, and then he branched out and became sort of uh, Enzo Racing while still working with KYB. It's uh, He's a great guy to bounce things off of, and what a, what a fountain of knowledge, huh? Heck, yeah. I mean, if you want to talk about a suspension master or – expert whatever you want to call it <laughs> he's the one i think of yeah he uh man he's got some really cool stories so how does that work for you know ross worked forever with the star racing guys right and they ran enzo racing kyb stuff um for that and then you know and then and then other times you don't see the enzo racing sticker on it and ross isn't hands-on anymore with it who determines how that goes and what works with who and obviously you and ross guys work together but how does it all work out well let's see if i could try to simplify that (laughs) so like i said ross you know i mean he's got enzo racing yep and there are periods of time where you know what we'll call factory kyb japan or whatever you want to call it they are mostly taking care of the uh, factory-level stuff, which mm-hmm. we'll call 
special, developmental, high-tech, um, different than what the consumers or even the kit suspension is for, say, a 250 team. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of depends a little bit on the team, how it goes, and what the, the 250 team, if you will, is interested in. Okay. Like, as an example, to, to have our office take care of a 250 team could be rather expensive um, as compared to having uh, Enzo do it with what we'll call Enzo Racing kit mm-hmm. suspension. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have the options to do whatever they want. And then if it comes from our area with uh, coming from Japan or whatever, uh, sometimes it costs a little bit more. And for us to take care of it as opposed to Ross, it could be a little more costly. Um, and then Ross, you know, he's he's his own guy and his own has his own business and mm-hmm. can decide kind of what he wants to do. Right. So sometimes I think maybe an easier avenue for some of these teams is to hit Ross up directly because he is easy to work with and he does have the a wealth of knowledge and mm-hmm. he has the background and the many championships uh, uh, that Enzo Racing and himself and his technicians over there have uh, accomplished over the years. So, yeah, I mean, when you go to Enzo Racing to get stuff, I mean, if it's a 250 team, you're going to pretty much get everything you could get um, from even our office. Mm-hmm. The separation point is we're the only ones that are allowed to work with have uh, factory level uh, equipment. Right, right. Which you know, which is not legal in the Supercross. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's things that uh, there's a there's a there's a cap limit on uh, being able to buy suspension in the Supercross, and and in the big bike class, it's it's really whatever you need. It's 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 whatever it's, works. Yeah. It's anything under the sun. Whatever yeah. each suspension manufacturer has to offer, mm-hmm. and the team wants to pay for it or lease it or whatever. It's like have at it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, we're going to get into your Honda background, too, later on in the show, right. and, and it's interesting to talk about. But you've been, you know, obviously there's Showa, there's WP, and there's KYB, and, and, and WP mostly stays on the Austrian bikes, as we know. And, you know, we have riders that, um, uh, the Kawasaki that ran KYB and Showa on different teams. Uh, we've seen that at Honda over the years. It's a really competitive business to 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 get suspension on a on a on a top top level rider and i'm guessing like there's a lot of politics and it goes back to the oems in japan and what they source production wise and everything else but when you have kenny switching from showa to kyb and and the cowie guys running two different brands like what are the dynamics of all of that and how does that work politically wise back in japan to have Showa and KYB flip-flopping around between teams and riders? Well, let's see. There's a very short list of riders that can kind of demand, like, in their contracts that they set up with their manufacturers that they ride for, Mm -hmm. a very short list of people that can say, hey, I get the option to run whatever suspension I want, Uh, whether it's KYB. I mean, in a Japanese bike situation, it's KYB or Showa, right? Mm -hmm. So some of the top guys, I won't say names, but there's a very short list of people that can have that in their contract that said, hey, I get my option, and the, the manufacturer agrees to that. So okay. 
Yep. That's why you've seen some of the, uh, like, as an example, some of the Honda uh, past days here where we've had a Showa bike and a KYB bike. Mm -hmm. There's different viewpoints on it. Like, some of the team managers and people involved, uh, some of them believe it's kind of good to have both the things going at the same time, like one rider on this and one rider on that. And maybe they can learn a little bit more about the bike. Like, yeah. yep. hey, this works on that bike. We can transfer it over. And then there's another um, thought with some of the teams and some of those people that it's better to have two bikes on the same thing. And the reason for that is, you know, you can directly, if you find, if you discover something on one bike with one rider, of course, it's quite easy to make the same move mm -hmm. on the, the other guy. So I don't know which one's best, uh, but that's the two situations. And that's, yeah. and the, the other part of it is, is, I mean, there are some teams like, Honda was a little bit flexible. I mean, I think they'd really like to promote Showa because in the recent years they have moved away from having KYB um, suspension on their motocross products. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Showa is a company that has Honda investment, and they're, I don't know if they still own a part of it. I mean, there's a lot of switching around with Showa being move to i guess the umbrella of hitachi or something like that okay not exactly sure what's going on about that but um so and there's a there's a viewpoint of some of these manufacturers like if you're going to have this type of suspension on your bike and this is what you're going to sell well this is what you should be racing with and yep. at times honda sticks with that and other times i think when they have the special rider that can dictate what type of suspension they want to use then um, then they'll, they're a little bit, mm -hmm. you know, they can change their mind and let the guy do what he kind of wants. And then, like, as an example, like um, Cowie, you know, in the last few years past here, Eli was a KYB guy, the other guy's a Showa guy, and I believe that, um, I don't know for sure, but, um, you know, Eli's in that position. He's on that short list, you know right. what I mean? Right, Um It is interesting to see that behind the scenes and, you know, I remember when Roxon switched to either two KYB or two. I think it was two KYB. You know, Showa Suzuki guys are like, "Well, we sell the bike with Showa, and that's what we want to promote." One of the higher ups told me that, and I'm like, "Yeah, but you don't sell it with his bars and grips and graphics and exhausts and everything else on the bike, so who cares?" But there is a little bit, of, like you said, it goes up to Japan that are saying, "While well, our star rider." is insinuating that the Showa components, even though you and I and most people know that this is 99%, uh, uh, you know, nothing that you can buy and nothing that would work for an average rider, it doesn't matter, right? So there's a whole right. lot of hoops to jump through. Yeah, so think yeah. about this. So I've thought about this a lot. Like, honestly, I mean, a lot of the people that are motocross fans or motocross riders they're like distance from hey what kind of a fork you got i mean there's a lot of people out there believe it or not that aren't like moto heads like probably you are or for sure you are mm -hmm. and me that may not realize hey you know he's got this type of fork or that type of fork and blah 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 or this suspension from this company or what um so from my viewpoint i don't know how well that that really sticks to the consumer like yeah. oh i gotta have show on my right. bike right but what yeah. what i do think though is i think that there's usually one goal for a race team and that's to win races mm -hmm. and you know i would personally put that above i don't care 
I'll quote Keith McCarty here. I don't care if you put broomsticks in there if you can win. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for sure. Uh, Ricky Gilmore, certainly somebody that works with Eli real closely. He also is responsible for uh, for Dylan Ferrandis over there as he's on the uh, the, the KYB big bike stuff um, and anybody else that they have. Um, really smart dude. Super tight with John and Eli Tomac, obviously. And uh, when, when the, whether he was at Geico or wherever, uh, he's, in, he's a big asset to you guys, isn't he? Heck yeah. I mean, all of our guys are, that's for sure. They Like Ryan kind of specializes in production stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. he's really good at having the patience and knowing the the ins and outs of having to work with production teams. Mm -hmm. And then John, he's like our oldest KYB guy that's still around. I mean, I think he's probably got 21 or 22 years working for KYB. So he knows everything about past history and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, Ricky, I mean, he's, he's, he's lived it. I mean, he learned suspension the the hard way by hitting the ground a lot and stuff. <laughs> right. And he's a good rider. And, man, he puts his heart and soul into this thing. And then, uh, I mean, he's usually the last one to leave and many times the first one to get here. So, um, and then he just kind of fell into a situation where, he, you know, at uh, where he ended up with the Tomax and they hit it off and, he knows how to speak Tomac. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, are you responsible? Do you have anything to do with KYB in the uh, uh, car racing world or UTV racing world or anything like that? Is that that's a separate department? I imagine that is actually a separate department. Yeah. Our little office here in uh, Orange County, California, we only deal with motorcycle stuff. Um, now, going back in time when I when I worked at Honda back in the the late 80s and 90s um you know kyb had a really nice office that i used to go to and drop off suspension all the time Mm -hmm. in cyprus literally right down the street from yamaha i've been there yep yep yeah and they had um warehouse technicians uh some engineering sales they had everything there in this you know nice industrial little building there and then i want to say 2000 9, 10, 11, when things started getting ugly with the economy, you know, we started seeing some Japanese companies, even in the Torrance area, that were like, oh, we're, we're moving to another place. Like, yeah. we're doing this, we're doing that, and downsizing, and blah, blah, blah. And I just kind of noticed over the years, like, when one Japanese company does something, the other ones are really watching carefully, and, and they might do it as well. But that's kind of what happened to KYB. They decided to... I won't. I don't know if I want to say downsize, but spread out mm-hmm. and and put things in different offices. Like a lot of our stuff went to. Um, there, there used to be a big warehouse on the side of the the 15 freeway going up towards Glen Helen that uh, had you know a bunch of parts and stuff. It was shared by KYB and Honda at one point. So some of the stuff went there. Uh, then we have another office in the Midwest. Um, that does do the car stuff and uh, and all things like that. Right. But we're the only one that d- does the motorcycle stuff. And in in Japan, there's a uh, one of the uh, deals they have there is KYB Motorsports, and they do the automobile racing and uh, rally car stuff. Uh, anything that's uh, and even kind of are behind the, the motocross and uh, on road or. or um, 
GP stuff for um, you know on-road motorcycles. Right, right. Um, so when a you know the new Stark Varg when it comes out will be KYB suspension and you know Beta's coming out and I heard Triumph maybe KYB when a company wants to put KYB on their bike or test it. Or, you know, this even goes for, obviously, there's long-standing relationships with the Japanese and, and KYB and all of that. But how does that work when a new company wants to come and put KYB on their bike? Obviously, there's a price needs to be negotiated. A, a model of fork and shock needs to be specced out. Um, does that have anything to do with you? Well, it, it kind of does. A lot of times it starts here. Yep. And then I end up, like, relaying the information to Japan. And then our um, contacts over there that we directly work with all the time, the engineers that we have um, that deal with our office, I hit them up and explain the situation, mm -hmm. try to get a little more information. And then um, it will go through their system over there and decide if it's something that we could even do. I mean, um, many, I mean, our office for motorcycle stuff is, I mean, KYB is one of the biggest hydraulic or suspension type companies in the world mm -hmm. but the motorcycle part's actually really small and a lot of times we'll take on a project when we have time to do it in japan mm -hmm. and manpower to do it and the um the factory capability um for assembly lines and stuff like that to do it mm -hmm. but there are some situations where like we're literally slammed over there where they can't take on another project at right, all until right. until a different time frame. So um, we're always interested in stuff. Like I've been hit up, I get hit up all the time by some of these different little uh, smaller uh, boutique motorcycle companies. Yep, yep. And it's occasionally like you'll like I have a bike called the SWM. I don't know if you know what that is. No. But it's a dual sport bike. That is uh, basically an old Husky knockoff made in um, the old Husky factory with a group of engineers that that didn't want to see that design go away, and they ended up getting funding to to make to get the factory. And I have one of these bikes and has KYB front and KYB rear. <laughs> it's, it's a dual sport. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and then like you said, Betas, Shurcos. Some of these boutique companies can do it, but it's just based on the amounts that they want and the time that they want it and the, the manufacturing capability that we have at that time. At that time. Oh, yeah, interesting for sure. Um, the, the racing fad of Air Forks seems to have run its course. Uh, Dylan Ferrandis won his championship on all air. Uh, we don't see much air in production now across the board like we used to. I mean, good God, Showa had a triple chamber air fork not that long ago and and you know now we'll talk about the ls f fork which is a hybrid fork that is it's kind of keep keeping keeping uh, some of our elite riders happy but yeah the air fork phase there bill um it was cheap to make it i, I somebody had told me it saved the oems 400 dollars per fork or something or 400 dollars uh whatever it was um so it helped production costs it was a, you know, it did work in aspects, but then again, you know, the majority of racers don't want to check their air in their forks every time they ride or every other time, and some of them don't even check their sag and so on and so forth. And then you had Yamaha that just, 
kept rolling out this really good KYB fork and shock that you know has been proven to work well, and they haven't really strayed from it over the years. Um, the air fork controversy, let's call it, Bill. Where do you stand on that? Do you think it it, it was just a, a cost thing for the OEMs, or uh, is there is there pluses to it that maybe? we missed out on uh, at a racing level because it does seem most guys are over it at this point. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, my take on it and I think our office's take on it is, is a little bit more positive for the, uh, the air systems. I mean, I gotta be honest with you. There's a couple systems out there that I think, you know, which ones they are that were just a little bit too complicated. I mean, uh, three chambers, you gotta try to remember the pressures that go in it. Uh, single-sided stuff mm-hmm. i would be at the track many times and people would come up to me i you know what i didn't i haven't ridden my bike in a month i honestly do not remember what i'm supposed to put in any of these <laughs> yeah, things right yeah and i'd be like all right dude this one is, but it wasn't even our brand of suspension you right know? and then but our system psf1 which is basically pneumatic spring fork that's mm-hmm. all that means right um so instead of having a mechanical steel spring, I guess, if you will, or metal spring, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it's an air spring. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of positives about it. So if I was to tell you, hey, Steve, um, I got this new fork, and I'm telling you what it's going to do, and this is this can be on your production bikes, your race bikes. Mm-hmm. It's going to have better bottom resistance. It's going to be three pounds lighter than the other stuff that you have on there. Um, and when you're out at the track and you you're a heavier guy or a lighter guy, you can, in five minutes, change your spring rate. Sounds pretty good, right? And yeah. not to mention, yep. it's a little cheaper, right? Right. So yeah. if you're a manufacturer, a lot of them went like, well, heck yeah, you know. <laughs> right. So, um, and, you know, this that this is a bad suspension design or system is just not true. I mean, if we count the last championships, um, let's go back to 2014 when, Enzo, I'll have to give credit, was the first one that started, like, figuring this out, like how to make these things race-worthy, right? And they figured out the bottom resistance and how tough they are. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a bunch of championships after that that I, I was thinking that day. I think it's 10 or more between the, the Jeremy Martin and then we go to uh, the guys after that, Cooper Webb, and then down the line mm-hmm. all the way to, to Dylan. And then if you throw in the middle of that, like Eli, 2015, uh, Hangtown, like waxed everybody by like mm-hmm. a minute with PSF one on there. So right. it is it is a good fork. But here's here's what I guess you could consider. I don't know the the negative point or the point that you have to kind of consider a little bit more. Regular Yahoo, Weekend Warrior, regular rider. Yeah, you got to remember to check it. Mm-hmm. It isn't really all that necessary to do it all that often. Like I have a set on a couple year old Cowie that I really like a lot, and uh, I sometimes don't ride it for two months at a time because I have another bike. Mm-hmm. And when I get back on it, it's literally off by like a half a pound to a pound. So, um, but you still need to do that one little thing and maintain that air pressure in there. Not all the time, but occasionally, and it's a little confusing. But I think what, for a manufacturing standpoint, there was one thing that that some of them weren't on board with, and that's the fact that you could have 
a very rare, but a full failure with yep, it. Yep. And that, that would mean that you'd have two fork legs that got damaged and released all the, the air pressure. Um, and that was viewed in some cases as not that great. But I'll also say one thing from a, a production standpoint, the 2014 KX450 had PSF1 on it. And I know for a fact some of the, uh, you know, the manufacturers that are trying to engineer and design and manufacture new dirt bikes, motorcycles, whatever. I mean, they science out the other makers pretty darn good, right? Mm -hmm. And they always use comparison bikes. Like if you're targeting, you know, better stability or sharper turning or whatever it is that that bike has good attributes on, um, you know, you want to be familiar with it. So I do know for sure that some manufacturers thought that that air fork on the 14 Cali was pretty sweet. Right. And in your mind, is this hybrid system, the LS fork, with a small, a real small rate of spring uh, with an air chamber to kind of get the balance of both worlds? Because there is, you know, in talking to a lot of racers, the small stuff is where air forks didn't work good, the small little choppy stuff. And then, of course, you would have an increase in pressure during the race as it, as it moved up and down and, and got hotter. This LSF fork seems to be the splitting of the best of both worlds and seems to me, at least in my layman's recognition, pretty, pretty good, pretty, pretty standard, pretty, uh, pretty solid. Uh, I don't know if we'll see production of, of it, but um, it's, it's got everything you kind of want for these guys. Um, that if there is this system that you're talking about, I'm just going to say that <laughs> a lot of companies in their factory level equipment have a lot of different bells and whistles that exist um, within them that the average people don't really know about. Right. This one, I can't comment on other than I have seen that trick done before mm -hmm. um, where, you know, going back in my early days, I mean, there used to be a, a fork cap that you could buy called a, a Goki, I think, made it. Okay. And you would you would just basically screw it on the top to your regular spring fork, punch a little air in there, and voila, you had a different, uh, you had a little more holdup or a little less, you know. Yeah. So this is an old idea, and, um, I mean, one positive about that idea that you're talking about is that you could not have a full failure with that, you know. Yeah. And you, you do have a little bit of... Um, adjustability in your spring rate or your hold up or your uh you know dropping the hold up a little bit right so um i don't know i i think that that it's a good idea yeah <laughs> do you uh we've seen some high profile air shock failures right with the wp guys at races um is that what's holding you know you mentioned that that scared the japanese right um is that what holds back an air shock from being more production, do you think? Just that exact thing that we saw at Supercrosses? Well, I mean, you know, that's a little bit difficult to, for me to say because I don't know exactly what their um, system is on that. Right. But I do know that must be super high pressure, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of things that have to be pretty much in line with sealing and, uh, and maintaining that pressure 
and not to mention how hot a shot gets yep. and the increase of pressure because, you know, you mentioned earlier about the, the air fork, you know, maybe pumping up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, anytime you heat up air, that's what you're going to end up with, whether it's a tire, even a regular mechanical spring fork is going to go up three, four, five pounds in a moto, you know, mm-hmm. depending on who you are yep. and depending on how hot it is out there. So we're always always going to deal with that. But I don't know. I can't speak for our engineers in Japan, but from my perspective, like a shock, um, being able to do all that, it seems a little bit. I don't know. I'm not saying it won't work. But yeah, it, it's a lot. It, it does seem. Yeah. It does seem a lot to take on. Right, know? right. And then there's Yamaha with their KYB SSS fork. It's been production. There's been changes and stuff over the years, but. You know, I talked to the Yamaha guys about it a couple years ago, and they were like, yeah, we, we rode those Air Fork bikes, and we went back-to-back, and we, we looked at all the cost savings, and we looked at the, and we just think our fork works better. And, yes, it's more expensive, but we could change it to do marketing, but then, you know, why? Why change something that works so good? And, Bill, they got a point. Uh, that, that, that's proven stuff, and it's worked really well. Yeah, I mean, it's a really hard point to argue. I mean, um, some of the other manufacturers, they jumped on it, you know, and and maybe it was because of cost. But like I told you earlier, you know, all those little attributes that it had, you'd go, well, maybe we'll give this a try, you know. But you got to give them credit for sticking to their guns and doing what they thought was best. And if you look at their record um, over the years with magazine reviews and just general people you know, yeah. happiness with the system. I mean, it's a hard point to argue, right? Like, yep. it, it it's easy to take care of. It's simple to work on. It's simple to get parts for. And it just kind of keeps on trucking along. And it, so far, I mean, I don't know, maybe your, whatever your opinion is, but production motorcycles, it's still a pretty hard system to beat, right? Yeah, they work good, man. They really do. You know, Showa took a big step up there, uh, three years ago, four years ago, and they, you know, they spec'd the fork out for Suzuki's and Hondas that was basically, from what I heard, you know, the A-kit stuff from a few years earlier. And I heard that from uh, many people. I believe it to be true. And, you know, so the production stuff is basically your A-kit stuff that was raced in Supercross not that long ago. And, man, I've ridden, I rode that Suzuki. I had one for a little while, and then I rode the Honda. And I kind of didn't like the fork as much as my Yamaha. You know, and technology-wise, that that show of fork is better on paper, right? And I was just like, I don't know, man. The trusty old Yamaha fork seems to work. So, well, I mean, that is true. I mean, you know, Yamaha has had a long time to, you know, work with that system and perfect it over the years, along with our assistance. You know, mm-hmm. and they just, I mean. There are different chassis setups, as you know. There's different uh, weight biases on bikes, different CGs, different um, power curves on everything. I mean, that, I think, may have a little bit to do with um, some of the bikes uh, not, you know, working as well with um, Showa or the KYB. I mean, it takes a lot of effort and time to get the settings correct on all these things, you know. Um, I mean... The, the you know as technology develops on these motorcycles, I mean it becomes cheaper and easier to make maybe. And you know at one time the A kit style Showa stuff 
and you couldn't even get it. So they made it a little more mainstream and brought it into uh, production, kind of poor man's mm-hmm. factory stuff, I guess. And um, I I always believe that 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 people have a lot to do with with things like that. You know, like let's not pick on what those components actually are. I mean. I don't know if it's, it could be the person deciding what the setting should be. It could be a test writer. It mm-hmm. could be um, many factors that really have nothing to do with those actual parts sitting there laying on the table, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah good point. Um, have we reached a point in suspension where, you know, for a number of years there, it was bigger is better? We went to 52s. Uh, we went 18 mil shock shafts. We went 48s when there was 46s. And now the last few years, we're kind of settled. Obviously, the, the Austrian bikes have a steel frame, so 52 mils, you know, going stiffer on the front end to offset the composure, the construction of steel versus construction of aluminum. I understand that part, but even Aaron Plessinger went down in size on, on WP stuff. And the forks have kind of stayed 48. Have we reached uh, a p- point in our history where we're, we're realizing that bigger is not always better? It's uh, sometimes harsher. It's weighs more, et cetera, et cetera. Because I feel like we're we're settled on our tube size. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about this. So we've gone from two strokes weighing, you know, in. 200 and 200 and a few pounds, you know, mm-hmm. and then uh, less end, you know, no engine braking really. Yep. And then we've gone to four strokes, heavier, uh, been trying to perfect the thing since roughly 2002. Uh, many stages of development and technology that's uh, been able to advance them. And then um, it's like the. Um, I mean, you got a person on this thing, and it weighs somewhere between 200 and 250 pounds or thereabouts, and hopefully it gets a little bit down, like closer to the two strokes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the vehicle dynamics and the size of the vehicle, I mean, you can imagine, let's just exaggerate, but so our biggest shaft is an 18. Uh-huh. Let's say, let's say we, we doubled that and made it a 36. You know what I mean? <laughs> there isn't enough room to package all this stuff. And the, the outcome of it, I mean, is probably more weight and probably more rigidity and probably a lot of things. So at least for now, I mean, I'm not Ross, right? I would, I, he might be a better one to ask about this. I'm not sure. Uh, or maybe one of our engineers, but, I would say, like, for the vehicle size, the vehicle power, and the person on it, we're getting dang close to where it should be. Yeah. Yeah, it seems that way, right? Like, it seems like, you know, and also the aluminum, the manufacturers themselves are making the frames a little more flexy and a little more um, less rigid and things like that. So I think we're, we're, we're working in the other way now. Um, yeah, Bill, I think so. Bill Orr on the uh, Fly Racing Racer X podcast. Presented by the folks at Renthal, Maxis, Coba Links. Speaking of suspension, Coba Links and Motorsport.com as well. Uh, Bill, I got a lot of questions. So um, about your time at Honda, let's let's get in the time machine here and go back a little bit. Uh, how do you get started in the sport, and how do you how do you get the job at Honda? Ah, uh, let's see. Uh, loser kid out of Arizona, <laughs> just doing his thing, wanting to be a dirt bike racer. 
lucky enough to score a couple bikes off the parents, uh, get hurt real quick. Um, but the key thing to get that get me that got me going is had a neighbor down the street that uh, do you know DP? No, you do right. Oh. Dennis Parker. Oh, Dennis Parker. Yeah, yeah, I know Dennis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's on the street that that we both grew up on. Oh, okay. So they immediately start uh, when they kids get a little bit older. I meet the old man, and the old man is uh, we'll call him the captain, Dennis Parker, <laughs> uh, and he. Um, he had a garage full of dirt bikes, and when I started going out of the ones I had, I had a Hodaka 100, and uh, he's like, you can have one of these if I want. He had CZs in there, Huskies, AJSs, so he basically fronts me a 400 Husky, and so we become friends and blah, blah, blah. Then the kids get bigger, and I start, and we start traveling around the country. These are fast kids out of Arizona that could mix it up with the California kids. And uh, we're racing Saddleback, uh, Arroyo before it was Glen Helen, uh-huh. Sunrise, Sand Hill. We're everywhere, Punka City, the whole nine yards. So I get a chance of helping the kids and, and seeing all the races and doing a little bit myself here and there. And I end up doing that for a bunch of years with the kids until they kind of get out of it. And then I got older, and um, I got in. I wanted I wanted to work for Kawasaki, to be honest okay. with you. I always wanted to, and it just wouldn't work out. But I had Kawasaki dealer experience, and I guess the, the, the clincher was to get me in there. So one of my pals, another guy, Carl there, he had a, a fast mini kid named Dean, and they would do kind of similar things. And Carl was a machinist, and he was making parts for CR80s, like, in his shop. And at the time, I don't know if you remember the ATAC yeah. valve on the yeah. Hondas. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a way to uh, increase or decrease volume in the expansion chamber. Mm-hmm. He was making these parts that you kind of a, could kind of adjust it. And so he'd show up at Saddleback or um, Glen Helen or whatever with his kid, and there was a Japanese engineer at the time that worked at Honda R&D that would notice his bike and go, what are you doing to that bike? Yeah. He goes, oh, all right, let me explain this to you. So they got to be kind of buddies. His name was Max Suzumoto. He's kind of a top engineer there for motocross. Mm-hmm. And he basically says, hey, we we just started Honda R&D. It's mm-hmm. in Torrance. It's, we're in a brand-new building. American Honda isn't even there yet. It's just a big pile of dirt, and we have a parts warehouse, and we're looking for people. And look, doing what you're doing with this bike here kind of looks like you might be a good fit there. Yeah. So he interviews, and next thing you know, he's running the machine shop there. Okay, nice. So a little bit of time goes by, and back in Mike's, what I'm doing in, in Arizona, I'm building hot motors, I uh, hot jet ski motors, okay. all kinds of stuff like that, and just doing like the regular wannabe Mitch Payton kind of guy, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah. And then anyway, he he calls me in a, in a little bit. And he goes, "Bill, they need people here, and you'd be perfect for this. They're gonna spend a bunch of money on all these projects, and they don't have anybody to do it. And you can." You can lead these projects. I'm like, I don't know. They're not going to hire me. <laughs> but I go, I go for one interview. Boom! They freaking hire me. <laughs> That's it. So You're in next, California now. Yeah. I'm in California, and I mean, I was born here, but yeah. but I ended up moving to Arizona when I was a kid. But 
Um, next thing I know, I'm sitting in these offices, brand new building, Japanese engineers and people all around me, and I'm like scared to death, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, for a couple years, I started in 86 or 87, I don't remember, but a couple years I am working on these projects with literally thousands of dollars coming our way to build these things. It was like a special project that they had that involved like these different types of vehicles. Was it like Honda Odyssey stuff too? Like everything, like all of it? Uh, It was like this theme that they had where they're going to use one motor to do a bunch of things, but it was a cool project and we built these different vehicles and, and I did basically handle a lot of it for a couple of years. Yeah. Then it kind of fizzles out and, they don't know what to do, and my, you know, just as a reminder, I mean, Honda went through some really tough times with the three-wheel debacle, you yeah, know? Yeah, So I'm literally coming in there right after that's over. So I think everyone had cold feet about a lot of things there and just trying to be really careful about that stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, I saw the, the dirt bike guys going out all the time and got to know them and stuff, you know, and I'm, I'm going, that's what I want to do here, you know? Yeah. And they had some... I guess higher level American engineers in there and they thought they were going to, you know, be the ones that could control the whole motocross thing and whatever, but they just didn't really gel in with the whole situation. Like they seem like they're more street oriented dudes. And, um, I don't know. They just didn't really fit the bill. And then the next thing I know, there was like a problem where some of them couldn't go out or shouldn't, couldn't mm-hmm. do something. So they're like, Hey Bill, can you do this? I'm like, yeah, sure. So immediately, <laughs> I'm like in the groove. Yeah, I know the scene. I know how to do everything. I know. I don't know the riders at this point, but I know that whole scene, right? Yeah. So they're like, well, I guess, I guess you're the guy. So that that's how I got to be the guy. So you were Honda Honda production motorcycles. So yeah, yeah. I moved into in '90 was the first year that I'm I'm, you know, production motocross development test guy, whatever you want to call it, yeah. working with the Japanese engineers coming over from HGA, which is Honda Geekin Osaka. And it's in a city called Osaka Dai, which is just outside Tokyo. And HGA is right next to HRC, and basically HRC is HGA. I mean, yeah. that's that's the heart of Honda Motorcycle. And but it must, have, Honda- it, it must have been, for them... You had a moto background, you built motors, you raced, you rode. Like you doing lawnmower stuff and dealer calls and special projects, you were almost not being used correctly a little bit. So I imagine they were like, oh, Bilson is much better at this motocross stuff, right? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, fit, I fit that mold pretty good. But, right. I mean, we didn't have a lot of people there. So even with that said, I mean, there were days where like, hey, Look, you got to come right on a riding lawnmower or something. <laughs> but it was okay. all cool, and I always learned something, and I fit in really good uh-huh. pretty quickly. I'd never even been around a Japanese person really before, and then I just gelled with them real quick how they thought and how nice they were to me and yeah. and the things that I could learn from them. So, I mean, right then in 1990, I start learning how HGA does things, how – japan and japanese engineers do things so i mean i had a i had a long time of learning how to do stuff you know right yeah you must have been a real sponge early on oh i I loved it i mean there were some weird things like uh uh you know the test days were a little bit weird like 
they'd send riders over from Japan and they would smoke ciggies in between riding and stuff, which I thought was funny. And then we washed bikes that were a little bit different. Like yeah. instead of being like, I was the guy that put it on the stand on the triple clamps and, right. yeah. and lean it over the right proper way. They'd be like, no, nah, don't do that. Just throw it on the ground. Just lay it on the ground and flip it over to the other side and wash it that way. And <laughs> it would just like, be really? laying there, <laughs> right? You're like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then, uh, like, one engineer that I work with, he's actually a super smart guy, but mm-hmm. we had a brand-new competitor bike, I'll say, that um, that the race team wanted to dyno. So we give them this bike that only literally has, like, an hour on it, yep. and they blow the thing up. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they call me at the end of the day, hey, Bill, sorry, man, we blew up the bike dude, yeah. on the dyno. Right. I'm like, oh, sweet, the thing's only got an hour on it. I go, no worries, just bring it back, and tomorrow I'll go through it and get yeah. it straightened out. Right. So brought it back to the shop. Next morning I come in, the motor's taken apart, and it's literally beat apart with a hammer. Like, what? L- like no flywheel puller, <laughs> no case splitter, <laughs> chisel, just apart. Okay. And I'm like, what the hell happened to this thing? So one of the guys I work with, which was a Japanese... <laughs> engineer he uh he goes well i wanted to see what's wrong with it and i go well me too but why didn't we do this right this is a brand new bike yeah and he's like he's like well um i just want to do it quick and i'm pretty sure we could do it just as quick so i basically ruined the whole motor but this guy was was, i was just a little perplexed like Uh, why would he do this so he ruined the whole motorcycle and it's got one uh, hour on it and it's junk yeah. So at that time, I'm kind of asking myself, like, how can we make these awesome products and have this weirdness going on sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah. so I, I mean, I kind of learned, like, and to be honest with you, like, dirt bikes, motocross bikes, any bikes to them, they're just a tool. It'd be like throwing your hammer in a toolbox. Like, yeah, yeah. It's almost meaningless to them. Like, once they're done with them, like, he goes, well, this bike isn't that good. We're not going to be using this as a comparison bike. We got it. We don't like it. So <laughs> to throw I mean, it, his yeah. viewpoint was just throw this thing away, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's so crazy. So I had to kind of, yeah. you know, warm up to that kind of thinking. Um, how much, uh, obviously, you're working on production stuff at this point. The bike you're working on that is a 92 CR line, which well, the 92 CR250, which is pretty radically different from 90 and 91. How much are you dealing with Dave and Roger and the race team at all, or are you bouncing up? Because, like, when I worked at Yamaha, Steve Butler ran the R&D department. Uh, well, I think actually uh, Porter did, but then Steve was the next guy underneath him. But Steve was always in our shop being like, hey, what would you guys learn today, or what what'd you do? Or, hey, we moved the motor this way, uh, and we learned this, and maybe you want to try it, and blah, blah, blah. Um so how much, so in that case there was crossover what about for you at honda uh it was a little bit different because like i just mentioned to you earlier like the r&d building was all by itself mm-hmm. in torrance there i think you've probably seen that facility before yeah the the race shop the service shop the credit union the fourth floor where everyone the sales was none of that was there and they were on a different campus which was like down in Gardena somewhere, and we hardly ever went over there, and they hardly ever came here. But a little bit later, like I want to say just around that 92 time, mm-hmm. they did get that uh, the American Honda site open over there where the race shop was. 
And it wasn't until then where I, I met Dave and some of the other guys in there, like Cliff and and, uh, and Eric Crippa and Bruce Ogilvie. It wasn't until then that I finally started having some interaction because they weren't there, right? Right. So what we would do, I mean, we'd, we'd, you know, every manufacturer, not just Honda, you know, you're sizing up the competition. You're looking at the motocross uh, magazines, or at the time only magazines, right? You didn't have internet or nothing. You're sizing up what, you know, everyone thinks about the bikes, the positives, negatives, and you're making a plan like, hey, how are we going to make this better next year? So that was the first time that we would start interacting with them. Like, you know, you guys see this on the race side. We see this from the production side. Right. Here's the magazine side. Let's powwow and come up with a plan here. So that's that's the first interaction I had with those guys leading up to the 92 bike because it was my first brand new what i'll call a fmc full model change bike yep. that i had worked on the other ones existed before and it was our first time to kind of group together and see what everyone thought so the first time you see a 92 is is in 90 do you remember like two years are you two years out uh no it wasn't quite that far back yep. it was probably 91 or somewhere in there right. where but but you know the way you know when when you finish a product I mean, you're already working on the next model year, like yeah. before you even finish the one, right? So, yep. all that stuff happens, and I mean, you know, they were—I'm sure they were already working on it in Japan because, you know, you have a, a, a schedule that you work off of for um, development, uh, you know, deciding what you're deciding what you're going to do, development, testing, uh, durability, and then at at the end of that, there is a date where the production is going to start and the factory is going to start rolling and you can't miss that date right so all this stuff is happening on the front side Mm -hmm. and there's by golly there's no way you're going to miss that production date because we're talking millions of dollars and bunches of time and all kinds of problems if that assembly line doesn't start when you think about it you got to have you got to have every part there from every vendor sitting there ready to go on the assembly line so Mm -hmm. it's really strict all this production um, kind of um, timeline. So you come up with a 92, Stanton's a two-time champion, Bale's the defending champion, brand new 92 CR250, I had one, by the way, uh, Flow Red, different power valve system, um, real flexy. Like, those guys didn't like it, and I talked to Dad Bentley about it, I've talked to Stanton and Bale about it. A real flexy bike compared to the 91, um, they had to stiffen it a lot over the years. Race team guys for Supercross didn't like it, uh, Bill, but I think you guys learned in the previous years. I mean, obviously the the story is infamous that Jeremy used his 93 frame in 94 and 95 and 96, so he loved it. But, yeah, race team guys at the highest levels didn't receive the 92 very well. Yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll find that situation, <laughs> I won't say quite a lot, but... yeah a lot of times where, you know, I mean, there, are, there aren't many riders around like Eli Tomac, you know what I mean? No, no. And going, going back in time, we had your Jeff Stanton's and your Jeremy's and guys like that, which were, you know, more or less the equivalent at that time. So, you know, you're working on a bike for the masses, and then by golly, you know, it still happens to this day. Mm-hmm. You get You get the good guys on it, 
and then you got a different story to deal with, right? And yeah, that's kind of what sure. happened with the 92. The 92, nuclear red, yeah. new body White work, tank. new all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Everything, like you said, it was a sick bike. The only bummer that we kind of had was nuclear red ended up to be kind of like wimpy pink. <laughs> you did, I did, yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but no, I do. We're, yeah. Like, yeah. we're like, what the heck? Well, the, for 93, <laughs> you guys changed the dye or something, right? I think there was... Yeah, it, yeah, got, yeah. It, it got better, but man, it was uh, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a, yeah, it was a disappointment. But uh, yeah, so, yep. you know, the 93 was, uh, was an improved version of the 92, and and some of the stuff that that we learned in racing went into that that uh, frame and stuff, mm-hmm. and it got it got a lot better. And Jeremy had a lot of success on that bike. Yeah, I mean, w- one interesting story with the '92. So, you know, before we start racing it, we're all proud of the thing, right? And we go out to uh, let's see, it was Paris Raceway, and it's the first time we're going to do anything with anybody, and we wanted to get the race team. <laughs> to kind of sign off on the thing, right? Like, just see it, right. ride it a little bit, yeah. and kind of suck the guys in and see what they thought, because, you know, we're all proud of it. <laughs> and uh, Jeremy wrote it, and Jeremy was like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's way, way, way too soft for me. Yeah. But, you know, this, I feel like, and, you know, he was right, I feel like I can ride this thing, you know? So with some modifications and stuff, yeah, obviously he was able to. He did real good yes, on it. Yes, clearly. And... Stanton either left early that day or he wasn't there. I don't really remember, but Bale was there. Uh-huh. So I don't know if Bale was in a bad mood that day or not, but <laughs> we're like, hey, uh, you know, we really like you to ride this. We want to take some notes and blah, blah, right. blah. And he's like, okay. So he gets out there and he rides the thing for literally one lap. <laughs> and he comes back and he goes, this bike is so soft it could not even ride it. <laughs> and, <laughs> And that was it, and he left. And that's so it. Yeah, we, we had a little bit of a letdown, but um, <laughs> but uh, that's soft you know, Jeremy, at Paris too. Like, geez, like it's not like it's a supercross track out there at Paris. Yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, right. And uh, so that was a letdown. But Jeremy, you know, he he could see through it and knew we could make it into a good bike. Yeah, so that it was, it, it was uh, narrow. And because I had a ninety-one and a ninety-two, it was narrow. It was tucked in. It was more of a supercross weapon. You know, it turned really good. It had some head shake. It was a b- big difference from 91. A real big difference. Heck yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was for sure. And so, you know, it, it turned into a good uh, platform for a few years. Dave told me, Dave, I did a podcast with Dave Arnold from the Honda warehouse earlier this year, and we went through some old Honda Works bikes, and it was a fascinating listen, and you, I'm sure you have a lot of respect for Dave and everything he done. He told me the HPP system is, is maybe the best power valve system ever, made but they had to go away from it just because all the moving parts and the wear and people not checking it and all of that but he really praised that hpp system that you guys went away from uh in 92 yeah heck yeah i mean that was a good one because if you adjusted it right i mean the difference between it being adjusted right and wrong was pretty big right and i mean you know obviously eric and i we spent a lot of time messing around with that and we could adjust them really good but for the average Yahoo, it was it would get off a little bit, but and it was it had a lot of moving parts, and you know perhaps it was a little more, you know, factory level or racy type than mm-hmm. maybe the average person should have had. Yep. So they started going to the other easier things and stuff like that. But yeah, that that was a good system. I we really liked it, and 
adjusted right, it, it was good. Now, one thing about the early Hondas and early 90s and mid-90s Hondas is MXA trashing the suspension bill over and over. Uh, were you were you part of the uh, production R&D crew that would look at MXA? Because they had a lot of sway back then. They really did. Jody and everybody, uh, you know, had the minds and ears of everybody. Were you frustrated at times in reading some of their reviews on the on the suspension? Well, it was one of the jobs I had was to kind of really monitor all the magazine mm -hmm. um, articles and the press stuff on, on the bikes, not just for ours. I mean, especially for ours, but, you know, to, yeah. to, stay, right. to stay with the times and what they're saying about the other bikes. So, like I told you, I mean, every manufacturer has uh, production bikes that they choose to use as their um, yardstick, if you will, like, for whatever, and so I will really watch it all, you know, super good. I mean, we had our own opinions. I mean, Yamaha's a great chassis, motor's kind of weak, Suzuki's turned great, just kind of like everyone knows, turned yep. great, pretty decent motor, easy to ride, blah, right. blah, blah. Yep. Cowie's not that strong of a motor, but good chassis again, and really, you know, pretty decent suspension. And Not good, our, not good quality control over at Cowie. Either. And, yeah, <laughs> and, you know, you could, you could break the front fender off in yeah. one little bitty crash, right? Yeah. So a lot of little things. Yep. But, yeah, so we would stay on, on, on top of all that stuff and, 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 um, and kind of, you know, yeah. try so, to know where we're at. And then motocross action, you know, they would write what they think. And I think at the time, and, I mean, maybe to this day still, you know, even maybe you do it a little bit. Like, there's there's something about, you know, Honda and making a little story. I mean, people will pay attention to Honda, you know. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe a little bit more than the other ones. I don't know. But that's kind of how it used to be. Like, oh, everyone's watching Honda. And Jody, you know, I think maybe it was good for the readers, you know, to have a little drama or have a little mm -hmm. thing where they're talking about how to fix it and what knuckleheads we were and all that kind of stuff, you know. So, so frustrated you at times, I'm guessing, though? Uh, yeah. A little bit, but, I mean, I wouldn't, we wouldn't get frustrated. We'd just kind of roll our eyes a little bit. And, you know, to be honest with you, there's times over certain situations, yeah, they, they were probably right about some stuff, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it uh, definitely seemed like that was the, the complaint about Honda year after year, right? Motor's great, reliability is great, fit and, fit and finish is great, but all these show us stuff. Um. What what's funny for me too is so now you're at KYB, and mm -hmm. so this this is a nice question for me to ask. What in the hell was Honda doing? Going Showa forks and KYB shocks and KYB on a one twenty five and Showa on the two fifty and KYB on a five hundred. Like you know, knowing what you know now at KYB, you guys were all over the place with suspension back then. Well, you know what I mean. I uh, let's see. I, I guess I'll try to speak for. Maybe all the manufacturers. <laughs> I don't know. Or no, I, I, I should I should say this. Uh, maybe I'll try to speak for all the suspension manufacturers okay. <laughs> right. uh, because, I mean, even though I worked there and stuff like that, I could still see. Hey, you know, there are times when the suspension guy and the suspension manufacturer gets put in the spot of like, hey, let's try to. You're the guy that can bring this thing around, right? Uh -huh. Like. Like, we got some other problems that we're not going to really talk about here. But, by golly, you know, with suspension, you can you can straighten this out, right? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Like, uh, and that's uh, sort of the situation that, that I would see happening. Because, I mean, all the stuff that we did, you know, wasn't 
perfect, and then you got a design or a prototype sitting there that you got to, um, you know, you got to make come around. And then the the freaking suspension, the guy is the one holding the bag on this, right? So <laughs> yeah. you're kind of making him go and, you know, pulling his hair out trying to get this thing reeled in. So yeah, it, it's it's a little tough in that respect, and I, I saw I saw some of that even on our side, and to this day, it still kind of happens. It still goes on, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, um, you know, we have a mutual friend involved in some production stuff for a manufacturer, and and he works with some of the race team guys, and it leaves with a setting, and then it comes back in a production bike with another setting, and they're like okay, but we just wrote on this one setting for, you know, a month, and we all approved it. So what happened? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a tough one, but, I mean, there's a lot of factors involved with that, too. I mean, I've been down that road, too, a lot. Right. So, you know, whether it's whether it's your – I mean, there's a lot of stages of this production testing from the beginning to, let's just say, four or five steps later, you're at the end of it, you know. Mm-hmm. So you got um, – you got stuff that you're maybe super happy with, you know, at some point down the road, middle, end, beginning, whatever. And then there's times where things can improve when they come back uh, with the new prototypes or the new suspension or the new whatever. And there's times when, you know, you're like, this isn't the, this isn't the way we left it, you know, what's up? Right. And then you could, you could see all kinds of things. Well, you know, the frame's cracking here or the suspension uh, was not working here, and we found some wear in it. Yeah. Uh, or these, this is too many shims to be in the uh, in this um, this fork or whatever it is shock, and uh, we're lowering the cost by removing some of the shims. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. all kinds of stuff. Sure. That, and and I think all the manufacturers, if they ever hear this, that are out there, or people that are associated with it. I mean, they'll, they've probably heard this before. No, 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 it, it's the same. It's the same. <laughs> and then you get down to the freaking nitty-gritty of it, and you're like, well, this is different, and that's different. So what gives? Oh, uh, it's almost the same. You know? So, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I yeah. was right, though, in saying that Honda had a bike with a KYB shock and a show of fork, or vice versa, right? Oh, yeah. So that, that was one of the, <laughs> the – I mean, I, I kind of told you that um, – you know, when my early days doing this, so I'm learning, I'm right. watching, and I'm right. kind of trying to see how this goes. And I saw a, lot of, a few weird things, like I mentioned, the guy smoking right. cities in between, which I thought was weird. But but in the cases with a chisel, yeah, 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 some oddball things. But one of them was like, so my suspension guys back then, and I worked very closely with the Showa guys and the KYB guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a guy named Inaguma from Japan, KYB guy, and I had a guy named. Uh, Tano from um, Showa, Japan, and then Ross would come out. That's how I met Ross mm-hmm. in 1990, and we've been buddies ever since. But, um, yeah, the, the one of the weirdest things to me, so at that time we had uh, the 500. That was, that was still in production, and we were trying to evolve it. We took it from being a fire-breathing monster, and by 92 had it kind of, Smoothed out mm-hmm. and more of a, a mellowy, torquey, easier to ride bike. Um, but that bike had uh, KYB stuff on it. The 250 had Showa for a pretty good period of time there, and the 125, for whatever reason, 
I looked it up the other day because I was trying to remember for sure because okay. it had been a long time. But Showa Forks and a KYB Shock. Like in 90, so, right? Like 90? And it, it went from 90 to 92. And in 93, we okay. went all KYB. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're out there, and, you know, you got to, I mean, both ends of the bikes, they, you click the shock, it affects the forks. You click mm-hmm. the fork, it affects the shocks. You know how that goes. And for it was the craziest thing. I'd have to have the KYB guy come out and click the shock, and I'd have to have the show guy come out and click the forks, and then they'd <laughs> they'd they'd argue a little bit about whose fault it was. <laughs> so I just thought it was crazy, and I go, and I so I'm getting with our engineers, and I'm like, "Do you guys see anything weird about this?" And they're like, uh, "No, what do you mean?" And I go, well, "I don't understand why you have show uh, forks and a KYB shock." I mean. Let me know what why what's the purpose or why are we doing it? Well you don't understand, like we try to support all the suspension companies and we or parts companies or right. vendors in Japan. So everyone's happy and we keep them all moving and we we want everyone to be involved in our products. I'm like, Okay, good. I go, Well, why can't you just make this a KYB bike, that a show a bike and that, you know, a KYB or a show a bike? Yeah. Why do it like this? And they looked at me, and they're like, you know what? That's a good idea. <laughs> and I was like, wow, how, what a simple thing. You know? yeah. that, that, that was funny. Another just a weird thing, that's all I could say. Right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem like that's a very good way to, to, do, to get a bike to work well, for sure. Yeah, very, very odd that they would do that. Did, were, yeah. were there times that you read magazine tests and – and it doesn't need to be MXA. It could be Dirt Bike or Dirt Rider or Super Motocross or all these magazines that were out back then. Are there times when you rode motor, read motocross uh, tests and were like, what in the hell are they thinking? Like they couldn't be, oh, yeah. they couldn't be more off on, on this model. All, yeah. all the time. I mean, all the time. I mean, it was like, you know, I, I want to say, I won't say which magazines, mm-hmm. but there was some that were extra critical of us. We felt, you know, or I felt um, at the time. Where it was just like, no matter what we did, we were just going to get, you know, railed, you know. And there's others that seemed like they could have been a little bit more spot on. So maybe it was the people involved or what they actually thought or just a way of like, you know, them, you know, becoming, I guess, the the magazine king or if you will, or something like that, you know, like what everyone would believe. I don't know. It's hard to say, but, but yeah, there was times that, like I said, um, we agreed sometimes and completely disagreed at other times. And, you know, when you put your heart and soul in this, that you kind of feel like, oh, man, that's a full letdown. But I'll tell you one thing, too. Like, I've seen this a lot before, too. Like, you know, I'm living the deal. You know, our team's living the deal. We're working this bike forever. And you fall in love with the thing, you know, at yeah. some point, right? And you got to be really careful of that. Do not fall in love with the thing because – you you might be pretty far off, you know. Yeah. And and so I always try to be cautious of that, like understanding what what other people might think of it, you know. And don't get too attached to it because, you know, once you're around something so much, yeah, it becomes to be an, a normal situation. And honestly, it may not be that normal sometimes. <laughs> That's a good point. When do you first get uh, wind of an of an aluminum frame? motocross bike coming uh that's an interesting thing because i mean it was literally like you know every year we would have these powwows like leading up to new models and especially if it was a fmc full model change 
we would have these powwows and try to kind of just outline where we're at and where everyone else is at and what would take us to the next step with the new the new bike or the new design, right? Mm-hmm. And we, I remember clearly, like, we had our list of wishes and wants and what we're going to do to improve things. And that aluminum frame was not – it wasn't even thought of by us, right? Really? Okay, yeah. They literally just, like, slapped us on the table and go, this is what we want to do. And, of course, we're literally just shocked by it. Like, yeah. what? Yeah. You know, I mean, the parameter frame – the Cowies was kind of a, that was something that we really looked at hard because right. it's like, hey, here's a here's a different way to skin this cat, you know? Mm-hmm. And then this one, no one asked for that that, that we knew of. And it's just like, boom, we're going to do this. And I mean, I mean, it was a mixed reaction by everybody. Like, yeah, it's, it's super cool or it's more like a street bike. It's like it was a little bit all over the place, right? Sure. But, uh, you know, I mean, we embraced it. And, you know, there were periods of times in that development that, that the thing was awesome. And we thought, man, we, we, got, we got this. We got the cat by the tail on this one, right? Right. Fell in love and with then, it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, it had its good points. I mean, I really liked the the radiator, the single radiator lower in the chassis. I mm-hmm. thought that was good. On other than getting a little bit beat up by you know rocks and stuff, but it, I liked it low in the chassis like that. You know. Yeah. Well, Rich Rich Taylor's told the story. You know, he's involved in the testing of that, and you worked with Rich. Uh, it was pretty good, and he liked it. And then they got worried about reliability over in Japan before it became a production bike, the 97 CR250, and they beefed it up to make sure that it didn't crack. And, yeah, uh, that affected the bike greatly. They were just scared of, you know, reliability for a consumer of, you know, putting all this time on it. Yeah, I mean, we call it durability because reliability is like, kind of like how long it'll work, and durability is kind of like how tough it is. Good you know? point, but, good point, right. Yeah. But, um, you know, it it did have its its times where, you know, it felt good and it looked good and it was, it was ahead of the, the time and everything. And then, you know, through that durability test, we, we had a pretty, pretty strenuous durability program going at the time. Mm-hmm. Japan spent a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort to um, to really drastically improve durability. And, you know, as an example right now, I'll say, like, you know, a, a KTM is a little bit more focused on weight and performance, and I can't say their durability is off, but, I mean, they might lean a little bit more towards weight and performance mm-hmm. as opposed to durability. And, and Honda... It's a difficult thing for them because they really want the durability. You know, they they want products to last a long time and be tough. So, right. you know, we we did experience some frame issues, you know, that were questionable, and that's the end result. Like when you have that, you have to address it um, from their perspective at the time. And um, I mean, you I mean, if you're going to put a bike on a supercross track and the, you know, the skills of the, the riders were getting way more advanced at the time, mm-hmm. and the bikes were taking a lot more abuse than they ever have before. 
and it was just something that 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 had to be addressed you know so the end result was it changed the the feel right so when you're doing durability testing with taylor and somo and jeff pistana and these dudes how much uh and they're you know i've heard the story a bunch you know they're they're putting four 30 minute motos on it each the bike's you know, one guy's jumping on, another guy's jumping off. You, everyone's logging everything. Guys like you are measuring things and logging things. How much are you like really looking at this bike to to? I mean, are you are you you're tearing it down and like using a microscope? Like, are is it that gnarly? <laughs> well, I don't know about the mic. Well, the microscope probably happened in Japan, but from our side over here, yeah. I mean, and it wasn't four thirty minutes. It was three thirty minutes. You know. Okay. Uh, if I remember correctly, a day. And that could be Supercross or or Motocross. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we'd have the guys do stuff. And uh, basically every bump is, you know, uh, logged, and each lap is logged, and the time's logged. And, you know, you're just kind of making sure that you're hitting your marks, and then the things get inspected at periodically at these intervals, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, and everything gets checked and rechecked, and then they get assembled again. You go out and do it more, and then you just complete the, the amount of time and the amount of uh, usage um, that that they have mm-hmm. or that they want, and then you know they take it back to Japan and, and assess everything. Was so, this yeah? Was this done in Simi, or was that gone by then when you were there, or was this up in the, uh, at the Edwards no. Edwards Orpher, Orpher? And then, well, I think we called it, uh, what did we call it, Honda Valley, or what was it called? What did we call it? Uh, well, Honda Land, I guess. Yeah, Honda Land, yes, Honda that's Land. Simi Valley. But it was, right? basi- yeah. it was basically Simi Valley, Union 76, yep. oil land that we leased um, land from, and it had a, a supercross track, and it had a, a pretty big, kind of a natural terrain, up and hill, mm-hmm. uphill, downhill, outdoor track. And yeah, we we did some there. I mean, we did a LACR. Uh, oh, okay, so all over the place, yeah. Paris, you know, wherever, wherever, whatever Japan was interested in on that respect. Yeah, right, right. And did you was was Taylor always bitching and moaning? Just tell me, I'll pass it <laughs> on, and we can. Oh, it was it was a crazy <laughs> dynamic in there. Uh, we had. Have you ever heard of Sean Wynn? Yeah, yeah. All right, so Sean Wynn was a guy. David Barrett, Jeff Pastana, Ray Somo, Ray Crum, Donald Upton. I mean, yeah. the list goes on. I mean, it's probably a hundred different guys. Greg Snell, yeah, Big Gun, Mike Young. Uh, it just goes on. But oh, and one of the ones that was super funny was Rex Staten. Oh yeah, Rocket Rex. He, he would be in there, and for whatever reason, him and Sean Wynn. He would jack around with Sean Wynn all the time. <laughs> and Rex, I was actually scared of Rex. Rex is a big, big man. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I mean, he started telling me these stories about his earlier days racing and stuff. He's gnarly, man. That, <laughs> that is probably one of the gnarliest racer dudes I've ever met. Yeah, But a likable guy Yeah, and super fun to listen to his stories. Thanks for listening to the Fly Racing Racer X podcast with Bill Orr. Koba Links, K-O-U-B-A, links.com. Use the code PulpMX to save. These are lowering suspension links from everything, from Aprilia to Yamaha. So if you want to gain some confidence, improve, improve your plushness of your bike, uh, if you're shorter of stature, you want to touch the ground some more, please check out kobolinks.com. 
for more information on that. And use the code PulpMX for free shipping and a discount. Thank you to those guys. Motorsport.com. Go through the banner on PulpMX.com. We'd really appreciate that. To help us out, OEM and aftermarket parts, all available at Motorsport.com. And uh, great prices, great return policy, free shipping on everything over, um, I think it's 69 bucks, 79 bucks, 79 bucks. Uh, driven to ride video as well as out, RV, me, Jake, Rory Sullivan, out off-road riding up in the woods of Idaho. So please check that out, motorsport.com. Great guys, Black Friday sales going on as well, depending on when you're listening to this. Motorsport.com. All right, back to Bill Orr on the Fly Racing Racer X podcast. Uh, interesting. Yeah, Rich said that one of the things that didn't help him was he got really mad at Japanese one time and said, you ruined the bike, the 97. You know, you guys are idiots. You've ruined it. And shortly after that, DeCoster made him an offer to go to Suzuki, and he felt like Honda was like, yeah, beat it. You know, get out of here, kid. You know what I mean? Like, let us test our bikes type deal, you know? So um, interesting for, to hear it from his perspective. So. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, he's maybe got one viewpoint, and right. I mean, what I know could be a little bit different, but it wasn't quite like that. I mean, you know, I mean, let's face it, let's face facts here. I mean, motocross is a short-lived sport for young dudes that that mm-hmm. look like they got the deal going on at that time. Yeah, how how long the deal lasts is is hard to say. Right, um, and what people's viewpoint of the dude and and their perspective on how hot he is or how good he is or how fast he is or whatever is always just like you don't know what people think of you sure and i mean you know uh rich was highly respected in the early days there was a japanese engineer named mr hoshi that liked his input and liked his style and appreciated his honesty Mm -hmm. and you know there's always somebody new and younger or better or whatever coming up right behind you. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what Rich's deal was, but maybe his, maybe his time was up there. I don't really know. You know? Yeah. That 97 came with twin chamber forks too, which was a huge step up in suspension technology. Uh, something that the factory guys have been running for a couple of years from what I understand. So twin chamber was a big step for production bikes. Heck yeah. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff. I mean, it was, it's like whatever ends up being raced and stuff like that. I mean, eventually, if it's good and they can lower the cost, you know, they mm-hmm. they would try to bring it to the consumer. Do you look at what you were doing back for Honda? You know, you were a small cog in the wheel of getting these production bikes great. And then now you're on the, you're on the suspension side. You're on the vendor side with KYB. And like you've seen both sides, do you do you have a, a little sense of irony in that? Um, yeah. I mean, like I said, I mean earlier, like I I could see when we we're when we we're making the suspension guys beat their head against the wall. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So now I'm in the spot where we we kind of do it occasionally, but um, I see both sides to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I know I know when something isn't really right and we got another problem besides suspension but you know we just kind of do our thing and then we just do the best we can i mean um we're kind of governed by japan so we try not to get too um in charge or cocky here about whatever it is we're doing i mean i usually try to refer things to japan if, if things aren't going correctly because at the end of the day 
they're the engineers designing and manufacturing the stuff, mm-hmm. and we're trying to do the best we can to take what they give us to work with and, and get it across the line, you know? Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. How long are you at Honda for, and when do you leave, and why? Uh, let's see. I Like I said, I, I okay, let me think about it. I believe I started at the... 86-ish? In... End of 86, I believe, something like this. I think so, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I start then and do those things I told you and just kind of ramble around. And at, at that time, they would just, I would do a lot of things, you know, before I got in directly into the motocross thing. Like, I would do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um, I learned how to make, like, models, like clay models mm-hmm. and uh, and hard models, Um I'd go out and ride lawnmowers. I'd go to dealers. I'd do all kinds of stuff, and then work in the fab shop and whatever it kind of took. I would just do it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's when I started. And then I got into the the motocross stuff. Go through that, and then you know, I think I didn't mention, but Dave, you know, kind of comes into our group at ninety five ish, ninety six ish, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they have me from that time on. I do. I I almost finished the ninety. Wait, let me see. I I I start working on ninety seven bike. Then they they have me uh, do like a amateur eighty race team. So the the eighty was a brand new bike okay. uh, in nineteen ninety six, and prior to that it was drum brake, steel exhaust, a steel muffler, uh, no power valve. Um, kind of a turkey like mm-hmm. no one really wrote, raced the thing a lot of people bought it but it was kind of more of a desert bike than a real race bike and it, it didn't have inverted forks had a lot of little things that just it hadn't advanced enough so they made a new 80 um and they wanted to race it and no one had american honda didn't have time to do it and they they wanted us to do it and i i did that and since i i love 80s man i I think I love watching the kids. Yeah, I'm so impressed. So I, at that time, I'm around James Stewart, Ricky Carmack. I'm watching them all grow up. Yeah, and I go to the amateur races every year in Ponca City, Loretta Lynn's, Lake Whitney, World uh, uh, Mini Olympics. I'm all those races all the time, and I really enjoyed that. It was cool. I had two kids on the team that we put a little team together and. Bill's pipes helped us, and was this it like was a blast. Danny Carlson era, yeah, yeah. Danny Carlson, da- Brian McGavin, McGavin, we really, yeah, yeah. We really cleaned house. I mean, we took this new bike. Japan wanted to showcase how awesome it was, mm-hmm. and it really was an awesome bike. I mean, even Ricky Gilmore here, he had one, and he's telling me, "Oh, I love that bike." Yeah, two versions: big wheel, small wheel, yeah. and uh, we went to. Honka, we went to Loretta's, we went to many Olympics, Lake Whitney, every event's around, and we did pretty dang good. I mean, those kids won a couple championships, and at the time, Justin Buckley was the hot shoe, right, mm-hmm. for Yamaha, and we gave him fits. I mean, it, it was it was fun. <laughs> That's cool. That's a little different switch for you. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, going to all those races, and, you know, it, it was good times. I mean, a lot of cool kids I met doing that. What would you do after that? Oh, yeah. So then I, I get a little bit more into other projects. And for a while, uh, I do street stuff. Okay. Um, I mean, 
there was a, a lot of street bikes that have like my ride position on them. Like you sit on it and you put your 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 hands on the handlebars, your butt in the seat, your feet on the pegs, and you have the opportunity to move stuff around and have a lot of vehicles or motorcycles that have my um, oh cool my uh, my ride position. On it. One interesting thing about ride position. So when I first learned it or learned about it. We're measuring bikes, and we're doing it on a thing called, uh, uh, it's like a, uh, a surface plate, I'm sorry. Okay. And uh, it's gridded, and you can lock things into place, and, you know, machinists use it and fabricators use it to weld stuff up. But this is like a really big one. So we lock the bikes in position, use the swing arm pivot as kind of this heart in the center point of the bike mm-hmm. and the, um, the crank center. And you get the thing like perfectly, you know, straight up and down, perfectly in line, blah, blah, blah. You measure everything. Mm-hmm. So we would measure ride triangle, uh, you know, wheelbase, uh, front axle to crank, pivot, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. And um, so we get to this, the, the ride triangle. And I'm like, well, I see how we do the, the handlebars. You know, they're obviously right there. And I see how we do the foot pegs are obviously here, but how do we do the seat point? Like, how do you make the triangles? Oh, well, we have to put a mark on the seat. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, how do you put that mark on the seat? Because you can sit anywhere. And like, get on the seat and make like you're gonna accelerate. Like yeah. you're gonna you're gonna do a start. You're gonna accelerate, and then kind of pretend like you're putting your foot out to do a turn. And they go, where do you end up most of the time? I go, well, most of the time I end up, like, right here. I go, okay, reach up and find your butthole and then put a mark on the seat right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, for real? Yeah. And they're like, that's how we do it. But yeah. <laughs> <Like>, okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, all right. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's how you find your seat point. And then when when do you leave Honda and why? Oh, Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, as we, as it stands right now, I mean, I think you can see over a period of time that, that a lot of the people that were in Honda are not in there anymore. Mm-hmm. And some of the reasons is, you know, maybe some of us timed out a little bit and got a little bit older, I guess that, that could be part of it, but they also kind of move things around and, and I guess for lack of a better term, uh, term downsized and kind of changed things up a little bit. So a lot of stuff done in Ohio now. Um, that's mostly ATV type oriented vehicles. Right. And then in Georgia, there's what's left of motorcycle. I guess I want to say design or any engineering or um, uh, any sales. Almost all that stuff is done in Georgia now, with with a very I guess I'll say it, like a skeleton crew. Yeah. Um, so that kind of started happening. You know, Dave got moved around a lot uh, and moved around in, in the R&D building a little bit. Uh, I didn't really, but I ultimately ended up with a, a choice of uh, going to uh, Ohio or not doing anything, mm-hmm. like having to leave. But yeah. I got really lucky, and um, my, my the first guy that hired me at R&D, um, Jack, Sperney, he he was working at HPD. Have you ever heard of HPD? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Honda Performance Development. Mm-hmm. So that's the IndyCar program out in Santa Clarita. And um, 
he calls me and goes, hey, I'm, I heard you're thinking of, uh, you know, maybe not staying with the company and stuff, uh-huh. but we could really use you out here. So I roll into working on the IndyCar program out there, and um, super cool. I mean, I was pretty scared of that the same way I was when I started there because I don't know anything about IndyCar. Yeah, right? yeah, you're but, like, huh? <laughs> but uh, I learned a lot out there, too, and I met some outstanding people out there as well, and uh, I got to drive cars around a racetrack. I got to work on IndyCar motors. I got to work with the people that build IndyCar motors, the engineers. It was, I got to see like engine dynos and laboratories, similar to HGA in Japan, where they had literally everything it would take to analyze a part, a product, make something. It, it was an outstanding experience, yeah. Oh, that's, that does that, sound that's pretty cool. It, yeah. That's where I ended my career, um, doing that. And it was just based on really, uh, like, like I was old enough to get out of there, retire, if you will. Yep. And they came out with some great program <laughs> that I was like, well, you know. Yeah, yeah I, like, I'll take that. I, I, I guess this is the time. I don't know. But then I fell into this. I mean, I literally was at... A1 or A2 one, like back in 15, I think. Mm-hmm. And I run into my old KYB engineers that uh, come into the race. And they're, and I'm kind of, I still stay in contact with Ross and helping Ross a little bit at Enzo. Yeah. Just kind of to do something. And the next thing I know, Ross is like, hey, they got a hold of me. They they want you to come manage that, the office over here. <laughs> You're like, so oh. I'm like, really? Yeah. So I walk into this, and I've done this since 2016, I think, and I, I've loved every minute of it. Including uh, letting Phil have good suspension, Nicoletti? That was a part of your deal? Uh, uh, do, you have, do you have to ruin this whole thing with Phil? <laughs> we'll just move on. We'll just move on. <laughs> no, I, I love Phil. I mean, like, I can't – I don't know. There's something – I mean, at, at times I've been called a salty person uh-huh. just because I'm, I'm sure. a realist, you know. Right, right. I, I love Phil's perspective on life. <laughs> yes. I love it. Yes, uh, we <laughs> so all do. We all do. We'll leave it at that. It's yeah. entertaining, and it's it's the real deal. There's no there's no messing around with it, right? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Hey, you had told me one time that you got a chance to meet Mr. Honda. Oh, yeah. yeah. Twice, actually. Yeah, that's first, pretty cool. The first time, um, this is back in my my goofy kid dumb shit years uh-huh. where I don't really know what's going on. And since there are so few people there, they're like, hey, you come here. We need you to do this. So next thing I know, hey, Mr. Honda's coming. And at the time, I was like, eh, you know, I got I had to put a suit on mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And I'm like, what in the hell, you know? It's not me, you know? Yeah. But looking back, man, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of people that literally got to shake his hand and get a picture with him yeah. and meet him and talk to him. But I did, you know, and I got to do it twice. Dave has a little bit more time with him than I did, for mm-hmm. sure. I think Dave got to actually be around him a little bit. Right. But for, for me, shaking his hand, and they're like, you got to explain this prototype to him, and you got to tell him what it does how much it costs, blah, 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 all this stuff. And if he has any questions, you have to answer them. So I had to get a crash course on this thing. Yeah. I didn't really know what the thing was at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's cool and he's funny. He was a real character. And he had his wife with him. Oh, I yeah. forgot her name. Yeah. But they're rams around looking at stuff. So 
I do my best and you know get the picture, and he's really nice to me. And then we all kind of follow him around the facility, showing him these different things, right? But one funny thing that happened at the end was, you, you mentioned the pilot earlier, right? The mm-hmm. little sit-down. Uh, Odyssey. Kind of yeah, I said Odyssey. Od- yeah, Odyssey. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I take it. Uh, let's see. I think. There was a pilot. No, there was a pilot. There was a, there one was a pilot and one was the Odyssey. Yeah. I think the pilot was the, the last version. Yeah, yeah. The, bet, the best version. Right. Anyway, one of those is sitting there, and he walks by it, and he, he seems to pay extra attention to it because we had all kinds of things out from the look at, right? Yeah, yeah. And he, he starts looking at it, and he's like, can I get in this? And we're like, well, yeah, sure, go ahead. Yeah, you're Honda. He's sitting <laughs> in it, and he's, yeah, he's playing with the steering wheel and started it up and looking at it. And moved it just a touch, you know, and then, and then, the wife's like, "Turn that thing off," and so he's like, and he goes, "I'd really, I'd really like to get one of these," <laughs> and, and she, she looked at him and like took her hand and like waved at him and goes, "Don't be ridiculous, you can't afford that," <laughs> and then. And then he gets out of the thing, and then we walk off. You know, but everyone was laughing, yeah, and, yeah. and I don't know. He was kind of a character, so yeah, yeah. That, that is funny. Yeah, no, no. You, this is a Honda. This is you can take this. You can take this. Yeah, right? yeah. I know. Yeah, just like like. I mean, it seemed like you know he's he's in his eighties at that point. Yeah. And then I think he's just literally, I mean, lost track of what the progression of the company. Sure. I mean, it'd be impossible to keep up with it with cars and the vehicles that they were making and all that stuff. So, I mean, he's just like, hey, you know, I used to just focus on little engines and make pistons and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in that museum with the works bikes, there's some of the first little tiny motors that Honda made back in Japan, back in the 40s or whatever, you know, 30s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's, yeah, he'd seen it all, yeah. Uh, Bill, thanks for the time, man. I appreciate it. What a what a career! Really cool. You've done some cool stuff, man. You really have. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, I I think it's. I mean, looking back on, it, I guess it's cool. But I mean, throughout these years, I just feel like it's my job and whatever, and it's not yeah. that big a deal. And but yeah, I mean, I guess I should, you know, take notice of it that <laughs> it, it was it was it was better than. I did a little construction when I was a kid. It's better than that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, really, really <laughs> cool walk down memory lane with us, with us today. And, uh, and yeah, uh, good job at KYB. Uh, Eli Tomac, two championships and an MXDN title and all on KYB stuff. And, and Eli's done, you know, he's, he's one of those guys that, that's really helped KYB's brand, and he's stuck with it no matter what he's ridden, right? Um, he has. Yeah. I mean, he's always he's always gravitated to to our stuff. I mean, Jeremy Martin kind of does too a little bit, but um, you know, he's 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 the real deal, man. Out of all, all the riders and people I've been around, that sling a leg over a dirt bike. I mean, Eli's probably the most calculated, smartest, he- most talented dude that I've been around. He must uh, when you dyno his stuff. Uh, his suspension or when you look at what he's got for shims or it must be unreal compared to most people in the world like how he pushes through things you know you would you would think that you would actually think that but honestly like that old cali that i told you about yeah i I have a, a eli setting in that that is not anything like you'd think it would be really yeah because he's so he's big he's tall he's aggressive you know, yeah, I, and he's smart on he's smart on the bike, and 
he he likes comfort and i mean it it's not it's definitely not on the soft side but yeah he he, but, he wants it all basically and we try to give it to him right but, uh, right yeah the settings would actually surprise you they're yeah not, okay all right they're not like they're not like they're made for you know somebody from another planet or yeah like that. yeah that's where that's what i would that's what i would think the way he aggressively attacks the track when he's on you know uh but just, so that's surprising you just, yeah you just give him what he wants and you just stand back and watch the magic. Yeah. No, absolutely. You're 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 right about that for sure. Well, Bill, thanks for the time, man, on the podcast. I kept you longer than the hour that I said I would take, but you couldn't, all right, couldn't well, help it. All right. Well, anyway, I had a good time with it. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Talk to you soon, man. All right. We'll see you. Bye-bye. This has been the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show, presented by Maxxis Tires, Renthal, Motorsport.com, and Kuba Links on RacerXOnline.com. Thanks for listening and supporting our partners.